Hey, good morning, everyone. Good to see you and be with you this morning. Uh, this is our, uh, the, we're wrapping up a series here that is called More Than Me, and we've been in this over September, and this is kind of a, a bit of a recalibration, a reboot as we come back into rhythms in the fall and remind ourselves, what, why are we here and what are we doing and what's this all for uh, anyways? And so to, to kind of lead it off, it's a four-minute clip, just a little bit of stand-up. Uh, this is Brian Regan. This is a bit called Me Monster. I'm actually kind of quiet off stage. A lot of people don't realize that. I was at a dinner party recently. A bunch of people that I don't know. One guy talking plenty for everybody. Me, myself, right? And then I, and then myself, right? Me, me. I couldn't tell this one about I because I was talking about myself, and then me, 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 me. Beware the me monster. So I tried to jump in with a little story. I don't want to just sit there the whole night. Right when I'm done with my story, this guy goes, that ain't nothing. Oh, well, didn't mean to waste everybody's time. Telling my nothing story. Here, let Marco Polo speak. He's back with tales of adventure. My story ain't nothing. Maybe it wasn't, because I made the mistake of trying to tell a story about having only two wisdom teeth pulled, and I learned a lesson. Don't ever try to tell a two wisdom tooth story, because you ain't going nowhere. The four wisdom teeth people are going to parachute in and cut you off at the pass. Halt! Halt with your two wisdom tooth tail! You will never complete one, trust me. I'm trying to tell my story. You know, I had some wisdom teeth pulled. I had, um... I had two, but I had four pulled. Oh, okay. No, five, no, nine. I had nine wisdom teeth pulled. All of mine were impacted. They were all coming upside down. The roots were wrapped around my tongue, coming out my nose. They were tusks. I was a warthog. No anesthesia. They pulled them out with pliers. I was eating corn in the cob that afternoon. Pin the blue ribbon upon his chest. That knocks the socks off of my wisdom tooth tail. Why do people need to top other people? I've never understood it, and I see it all the time. Obviously, people get something out of it. At best, people wait for your lips to stop. Yeah, as soon as... Okay, yeah, you, me! You, me! You see the difference? You see, you see that? Now I do. What is it about the human condition? People get something out of that. That's why I have a social fantasy. I wish I was one of the 12 astronauts who have been on our moon. They must love knowing they can beat anybody's story whenever they want. They can sit back quietly at a dinner party while some other person, some me monster, is doing his thing and let him go. Let him run with the line while you be quiet. Oh, really? 
Let him have his moment. Yeah, I'm a big traveler. I have my business. All. I got my own global enterprise. I got to check on. You know, I'm driving in the autobahn because I keep a fleet of sports cars over in Zurich. You know, I got this Swiss account that I want to check out. Mount Kilimanjaro expedition. Might have to cancel that. You know, runways and aspirin are a lot shorter the first time you go in there. You know, you know, you know, you know the Pacific Rim Company are going to try to take that over. And I don't Global enterprise. I walked on the moon. (laughs) Well, you have the floor, moonwalker. (laughs) You know, you mentioned driving on the Autobahn. That reminded me. Once I was driving in the Sea of Tranquility. (laughs) In my lunar rover. And I, too, was worried about our speed till I remembered, wait, we're the only ones on the moon. Beware the me monster. Um, Stan Mitchell has this quote. He says, there's two kinds of people in the world. The one that walks into a room and says, here I am. And the one who walks into a room and says, oh, there you are. In the second half of life, I plan on being the latter. And it's so easy to get caught up in that kind of like, you, me, kind of thing. You, me, uh, this kind of competition or tribalism or one-upmanship or to have a strong sense of I, I need to be better than you. There's two kinds of people. And so I love that dream that Stan has, second half of life, I plan on being the latter. And I love that dream of imagining a community of people who are committed to that dream rather than walking into a room or a city or a neighborhood and saying, in so many words, here I am, rather than coming with like, oh, there you are, I see you. And so this in, really is what the series has been and is about of, of being more than me. And, and and in a way, there's been an implicit question before that phrase. And, and it, it, you could say it's like this, well, what am I for? Or what are we for? And, and the answer is, well, to be about more than me. But I want to hold that question with you this morning. What is this for? Aristotle claimed that to discover something's nature, if you really want to know what a thing is, then you need to know its telos, its goal, its end, its target. What is it pointing to? You need to know what the thing is for. And you discover what it's for through action, through seeing it do its thing. So stay with me here. This, but imagine you get, you get a nice new upright vacuum. You've never had this kind of vacuum, so you don't recognize it. It's, it's one of those push ones and it's tall and and you're not sure you're confused of what this is for what is a vacuum's tell us we've all asked that question before and so they they have you have this vacuum and you go well I'm very familiar with racket sports and this has a handle and so it's clearly tennis and so you're you're at the court stay with me you're at the court and you know you're trying to you're trying to lug this thing and hit tennis balls with this thing You've got a confused telos, and what's the result? High frustration, potential injury, eventually 
chucking, discarding the thing. It's not what it's for. Or you think, oh, it's got wheels, it kind of bends, I'm dropping this into the half pipe. And so over the wall you go, you're trying to, what's, what's going to happen? You've got a confused telos, then you're going to, this high frustration, very high chance of injury, high chance of discarding it. Until someone comes around and says, let me show you this thing in action. Plug it into the wall, bring it into the living room. It starts sucking up everything. And you think, that's what it's for. Oh, and, and, and it's, oh, it's for cleaning up your floors. And you're like, yes, but it even has a, a greater telos than that. What, what? It's for rapidly, feverishly doing this before you have guests over so you can lie to them that your place is always like this. You go, oh, that's the telos of a vacuum. I finally get it. And you see it, you learn it while it's in motion. So what is the church for? We've been, in, in a way, holding that question. And we said it's for more than this. It's for more than just kind of perpetuated disenchantment. And last week we talked about it's for more than me. It's certainly not all about me. And this week we're looking at that it's for more than us. And as we've been doing these last couple of weeks, I want to look at Colossians 2 with you once again. Colossians 2, uh, verse 6. I don't have the page up there, but if you want to go, uh, you can. And just kind of put a thumb in the Bible there, because we'll come back to it. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental forces of this world rather than on Christ. And as we've noted, this, all of this, the church, all of this, a life, a human being, all of this is for Christ. That's the whole claim of Colossians 1 and 2. Morning. Hi, I don't mean to interrupt. Hi. There's somebody in here. I think the guy's in here. There's a dog kitty corner. It's yours. Okay. Appreciate it. Thank you. It's good. Love dogs. <laughs> no worries, Jeff. Yep. <laughs> yeah, totally does. <laughs> totally does. Thank you. It's a great segue. So even we're, we're reminding ourselves this is more than us. And, um, and Colossians 2 shows that trajectory and, and calls for it, and a call to, to be about Christ, and that trajectories matter. So this week, well, previous to this week with our kids, we've been trying to educate them about a really wide range of music. And that's one of the joys of parent, parenting, especially now in the digital age where they have access to all kinds of albums, and so it's really fun to uh, expose them to all kinds of music. And so in, a while ago, they, they discovered your favorite band, ACDC, and, um, and really enjoyed the riffs of this. And so there's been a lot of ACDC in the house. This week we had to say, you know what, it's, it's great, a lot of those songs is fine, sort of. Um, but, you know, Highway to Hell, we're not, let's, let's not do that one. We're not going to... Because we had a lot of people walking around the house singing, I'm on a highway to hell. That's just not, 
let's not own that as a trajectory. Let's not point our lives to that. And that's not really something to meditate on, okay? So let's know highway to hell. Let's just not listen to it. You don't need to, to be singing that. There's a bit of pushback. It's got a great riff. There's lots of great riffs out there. No highway to hell. And then later uh, in the week, Amy overheard one of the kids upstairs singing, I'm on a highway to Abbotsford, um, which, is, which is an interesting substitution. <laughs> and it, and it's, one, it's one that could be read in many ways. <laughs> but, but what they were doing was they're like, what your point your life at, your trajectory matters. And they're like, when I'm on the highway, I'm going to grandma and grandpa's house. That's where I'm pointing the trajectory of my life. Going to grass. So that's the, there's nothing against uh, Abbotsford there. So trajectories, uh, telos, really, really matters. Re- really important to keep calibrating that telos because it always shifts and it always drifts. And so that's what we've been looking at. And it's very simple, yet uh, uh, at least I, uh, it's, it's been feeling this way for me, extremely challenging calibration to Christ, to Christ. I like how Richard Niebuhr said, the great Christian revolutions come not by the discovery of something that was not known before. They happen when somebody takes radically something that was always there. And so what we're looking at is so simple, in many ways so basic, and so easy just to skim over and say, got it, I got it. So I would like to pray for help as we uh, look at this question. What is the church for? And, and beneath that, what are we for? What is our in church for? I would pray for grace, for an atmosphere of grace to uh, be at rest. Thank you, Jesus. With you, there's nothing to prove and nothing to protect. And that you disarm us. And you are about the flourishing of our full humanity based on your template of how to be human. And so we, we've come here to, to have the veil moved so we can see you better. And to bring our confusion and our disenchantment and our tiredness, maybe our boredom, and to bring all that with us so we can see clearly, to see who you are, and ultimately then what, who we are and what we're for. And so we pray for clarity, for wisdom. You'd give us a spirit of revelation to see, well, as we open Scripture in Jesus' name, amen. So what is the church for? It's been said uh, by a bunch of pe- different people, God's church doesn't have a mission. God's mission has a church, that the church exists for mission. I like this really simple definition by Thomas Merton that apparently was written on the wall in his hermitage, probably an effort just to try and distill this down, and he says this, the mission of the church is to continue Christ's ministry on the earth. Again, really easy to just bypass that and go, got it, sounds, sounds about right. But this is what actually ended up turning the world on its head. A group of people who apprenticed themselves to Jesus and then kept doing the Jesus stuff, right? They observed, they experienced, they watched him. These were his disciples. They saw his overall way of life, his lifestyle. 
And then, filled by the Holy Spirit, that is the the Spirit of Jesus, they're animated to do the very same thing. And this, in fact, is one of the most bizarre, really, bizarre images for the church, the body of Christ. The body. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is, if you've been around church, it's common, but this is such a wild metaphor to try and inhabit and go, wait, okay, so imagine your life that it, you're part of like a, a, a small part, but still a part of this moving body, this Jesus body that's moving around in the world. That's the whole point. You're, you're part of, of choreographing this movement. See your life then join together with other people whose purpose is to embody and enact and enflesh Jesus in the world. So what is a church for? There's no other dictionary entry than this, to be the Jesus body in real time. Or as Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you, as. So how was Jesus sent? What was the Jesus stuff? What did Jesus do? Let's just shout out a few things. Uh, as you've had opportunity, perhaps, to experience, to observe, to read the Gospels, what's the Jesus stuff? What did Jesus do? Heal. Forgive. Forgive. Fed people. Acknowledge the marginalized. Taught. Wept. Challenged. Served. Feasted. Died. Redeemed. Yeah. We could make a long list here. But the, uh, the real essence then is watching, observing, imitating, practicing. If he did it, then as his apprentice, then so do I. So if Jesus welcomed everybody, early church starts going, well, okay, we welcome. That, okay, that, that's, we'll learn from him. We welcome everybody. Okay, if Jesus healed, then we heal. And if Jesus saw those everybody overlooks, nobody notices, oh, then we, we're going to do that too. We're going to see people. We're going to see those who nobody ever notices. And if Jesus was the friend of sinners, then we're going to be the friend of sinners. And if Jesus had such a high regard for infants and little babies, then we too are going to have the, the church was, was, early church was one of the, the first forces against infant side. People were just throwing babies into canals. And, and so the church then were like starting adoption agencies to, to rescue these little ones. Some of the first hospitals popping up because there's a group of people who are watching what Jesus did. He healed, so will we. Jesus completely reoriented the social fabric of his day by making family not based on kin, but family based on him. I did not mean that to be a rhyme. Uh, 
that, that's, that's what he did. Oh, okay, that's Jesus' definition of family. Then what's our definition of family? Same thing. And so in a world of closed circles, these early Christians started breaking the circles, started making those circles begin to face out. And this was what was so revolutionary. And historians like Rodney Stark noted that in a culture defined by bloodlines and tribal identities, where me monster tends to uh, lead within a group, not just in an individual, but groups with a me monster impulse, when that's in a culture that's raging with that impulse, here you've got a, a group of people that are, are animated, are, are embodying a, a contrasting impulse. And they excelled at welcoming strangers, opening up their tables, breaking the circle open. But it took a lot of time and practice because early on, some of the big controversies were about, well, how far does the circle break open? Gentiles? No, not included. So the promises of God are just for Jewish converts. And you know, some of the, the big leaders in the church, Peter, being against Gentile inclusion. Uh-uh. Until Acts 10, he has a dream. He realizes, oh, the Gentiles are filled with the Spirit. Guess they're in. Guess we're widening the circle. And it keeps going. Ultimately, what these people are doing is they're basing, they're trading their lifestyle in for the lifestyle of Jesus, orienting around him. And if you were to sum it all up, the way of Jesus is about costly self giving love. And if that's what Jesus is on about, then so am I. And Jesus would teach his disciples stuff like this. He'd say things like, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. See the word as again. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for the friends. And they got the teaching and then they got the demonstration. They got the action in real time on the cross. He said, ah, I get it. I get this telos. This telos is a cross. This this is a weird thing I'm being invited into here where I lose my life yet find it. I like how Daniel Berrigan said, before you get serious about Jesus, first consider how good you're going to look on wood. (laughs) Ah, okay, so this is the Jesus way. And what happened then is people start practicing and failing and practicing and doing this in the wider culture. People start to go, what is, what is this? Families not organized around tribes and bloodlines, huh? Circles breaking open. People not just about self-preservation. What is this? And so people like, this is a great name, Julian the Apostate, uh, Julian the Apostate, who was like a vigorous enemy of Christianity, he, this is his words, he said, the godless Galileans, this was his phrase for Christians, the godless Galileans fed not only their poor, but ours also. Tertullian wrote uh, that there's these rumors starting about these early Jesus followers, the people who were being the Jesus body out in the world, he said, the rumors was, see how they love one another. Was, that was the rumor. And all kinds of stories. Uh, I had way more stuff than I can get through. But we, we see stuff like 
the church feeding 3,000 people, like not just a parable of Jesus but, or, or a story in the Gospels of Jesus doing that, but then the church practicing that. One, one more quote, Dionysius. He's, this is written around somewhere like 260 AD, and, and it was at the height of a, a massive epi- epidemic, and Christianity became an urban movement at that time because there was these big plagues, epidemics happening in the cities, and so the, the, the cultural elites had the privilege and the resources to flee the city. And so all that was left were the sick and the poor. And it was the, the Christians who were moving back into those places and those cities when everyone else was leaving. And so Dionysius is writing about this. He says, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. That's a rumor of of some really early medicine going a little little bit sideways where you're so eager to heal and, and you're that incarnational that you're in the flesh, you're in the mess with people that you end up actually transferring the disease and taking it on and dying in people's place. And so if we were to summarize all this up then, we could say the church at its most beautiful throughout history has been when it's had a clear telos. The church is beautiful when it's about more than us. The church, though, can be terrifying when it loses that telos, when it becomes about power and dominance, and cultural prestige. The church can become ugly when it becomes about moralism, and measuring sin, and catching sin, and and ranking righteousness. We we could go on. We've all experienced different forms of that, uh, I'm sure. But here's the mystery, and, and, and just... I think the beauty of the church is summarized in a quote by William Temple. The church is the only society on earth that exists for the benefit of non-members. It's beautiful when it's about more than us. So what does that mean for us as we come into this fall, a new season here in Vancouver? You likely know, um, if you've been around for a little while, you may not know we call it our mandate uh, but that's what we call it, our why. This is why, as a church, we get out of bed in the morning, is to join God in the renewal of all things. We exist. That's the telos. If, if uh, Jesus says, look, behold, I'm making all things new, then the reason we exist as a church is to join in on that kind of work, and that the scope of that work includes all things, all industries, all neighborhoods, all peoples. We're, that's what we're into. That's what, why we exist. You may not know because we haven't talked about it a lot, but we will more in this next year is what we call our mark or what we're aiming at, what we're seeing as our telos. And that is, we want to see Vancouverites transformed into followers of Jesus, practicing his way and becoming like him in every sphere of life. That's what we're aiming for. Change, particularly Vancouverites, changed into followers of Jesus who then practice and become like him in every sphere of life. So I've been thinking about 
that, and I've been thinking about us, and I've been thinking about our future, and who we are and where we're going, and I can't stop thinking about the gym. So imagine you've got, uh, that's obvious, right? Yeah. Um, so, so imagine this, a uh, little thought experiment. You've got a vision, and your vision is you want to see people, you want, you want to help people get in shape. You want to see people take ownership of their health and their well-being, and, and to take ownership for that, to grow in strength, so that then they'll be of use in the world. They'll be strong, they'll be able to offer their health and, and to serve people out in the world. So in order to reach this vision of seeing people grow in health, you're like, I want to start a gym. We're going to do a gym. You've researched the neighborhood. You've got the equipment, tr trainers. Um, you've got a group of people. You spend a lot of time clarifying. Like our vision, the reason we're here is for health because we, we think healthy bodies lead to healthy communities. And lo and behold, the gym takes off. Going great guns. You've got a community that's formed uh, people are coming to the gym. There's growing memberships, not even just in January, other times of the year. It's, it's great. Um, and as you, as you spend more and more time in the gym, you notice that it's actually a little more complex. This, this gym is really multifaceted, and, and there's actually multiple communities within the community. There, there are a group of people in the gym who, who have been very hurt, by previous gym experiences. Uh, some of them have had harsh trainers, uh, some really grueling and weirdly competitive cultures of one-upmanship. Some of them have actually developed serious injury by an, uh, a culture that has no notion of rest. And the result is now that language of like cardio or burpees, uh, there's deep allergic reaction to that. <laughs> And, and so these people are at the gym while being really allergic to the idea of the gym. So there's tension for these people. You've got another group who are continuing to come to the gym, pretty into gym, but not so much for the exercise. It's for the people that they used to work out alongside, and they're there for the people. And just recently, last week, they started pulling some of the benches together and uh, just having a little corner, they're like, they just call it hang time. And, uh, and they're just hanging out, they love being together, and when in, anyone comes over and says, can I use that machine, or saying, they're like, hey, community, community, having community here. That's part of the gym's mandate. We're a community that, that seeks healthy bodies for healthy communities. What do you, back off. There's a group that's been around for a while and have had a lot of gym. Some of them grew up going to gym twice on Sundays, morning and night. And these people, they find themselves, they're just fatigued. They're not really into it. They think the intensity of, of the newcomers is cute. And they'll say things like, they just don't get it yet. Wait, wait till they, they come around. And what they're interested in is a culture of comfort. There's some Dr. Pepper and Cheetos in the gym and more community. There's a group that's decided that what the neighborhood needs actually isn't a gym, but a nonprofit pour-over coffee bar. 
And so they've been working, they've had extra meetings and they pushed the leg press together and a few other chairs and they're doing pour over. Someone's been bringing lemon scones and they're really excited that probably more people will come to the gym because of their nonprofit enterprise. Lastly, there's a group of people that who want to work out, having a hard time getting to some of the equipment, having a hard time in, in the overall culture of the gym to say, I'm committed to health. Because in this gym, it's weird, to, strangely, to be into health. Now, what's going on here? Uh, lots. And this is an interesting gym. And if we were to try and summarize it, you'd have to say, Generally speaking, there's confusion in the gym about what the gym is for. There's confused telos, and when there's confused telos, there's higher frustration, there's higher chance of injury, there's higher chance of just discarding the whole thing altogether. So there's some of going like, is this still a gym? Is this a gym if it's not for the purpose of gaining strength and health? Is this a gym if the dominant practices aren't actually aligned with a healthy life. Now, let's be clear, if, in case you're thinking I'm being t- too much of a jerk here, let's be clear. Getting healthy, finding discipline, getting into the gym. Lord knows and Lance knows that is hard. <laughs> That's really hard. There's all kinds of resistance. Uh, and when it comes to this stuff, there's a lot of compassion that's needed. This is, this is hard. But... So what's allowed then, since it's so hard, is failing. What's allowed is not being very good in the gym. Here's full disclosure. I went to the gym twice this week. And by twice, I mean the first time I was in there for five seconds, turned around and left. Why? I walked in there, and it was filled with people who did not look like me. They were all in shape. Very tight T-shirts. Okay? Exerting heavily really knowing what they were doing on the equipment. I showed up in a tie-dyed wolf t-shirt. <laughs> I, I actually did, ready to hit some iron. And I thought, I, I'm out of here. I can't, I, I, I was too embarrassed, too intimidated to go, I'm not gonna go in there and try and swing the kettlebell in front of these people, so I left. I came back a couple days later, there's three of us in the gym. It's an elderly Chinese man who's doing just really sweet, like, just like this. <laughs> it's great. And I came in, and he, looked, he nodded at me like, you're here too, and I'm like, I'm here. And so he was doing his, his there's another guy, and uh, he had dress shoes, really dirty sweatpants, uh, a winter coat, uh, pretty, pretty grungy-looking dude, and, he, and he's got dumbbells, a couple of these, and then he's walking it off. <sighs> And there's me in my tie-dye wolf shirt trying to, and it didn't matter. None of us really knew what we were doing, but we were in together. And the winter coat guy comes over and he's, they're trying to communicate and, and the, the elderly Chinese man's telling him he likes his, his uh, dress shoes and that guy pulls his, his um, suspenders. I didn't mention that he was working on suspenders. It's so great. Just snapped his suspenders and we all laughed. We're not really communicating at all and... <laughs> And then they look over at me, and I'm in my wolf t-shirt. And, it was, and we, it was fine. What's allowed is failing. What's allowed is not being good at this. But what's not allowed is like 
saying, who cares about the gym or repurposing the equipment or saying what, what this place is for is like, I don't know, something other than health and strength. And what's weird is when it comes to the church, because we're so gracious, particularly our congregation, is there's enormous amount of leniency for a variety of definitions of what happens and what church is for. Multiple definitions. And one of the joys and challenges of being a pastor is meeting with people for them to tell me their definition and what they wish I would do more of and what artisans should be more about. This is the telos. Why aren't we about this? We need to be a gym that, like, we, we should do some flaming batons in there and let's, like, make it more circusy. I'm like, well, no, no, no. Let's be, let's be clear. Let's not get co opted by subtle things. And one of the co op things that get, church gets co opted by is the notion of community. We're going to have communities always, always gathered around something. You can have a community that forms out of a shared practice at the gym. What you can have is community that gathers around community. It just doesn't work. You have community around your hockey team. You can have community around your yoga. You can have community online. You have various, but it's always around something. Community around community just peters out and doesn't last. And this is one of the subtle ways church gets co-opted. Listen to this by Robert Bela. Although the term community is widely and loosely used, often in connection with lifestyles, what is actually experienced is not community but a lifestyle enclave. These enclaves are segmented and they celebrate the narcissism of similarity. They involve only a segment of each individual, usually leisure and consumption, and a segment of society that includes only those who share the lifestyle of a particular kind of consumer at leisure. The lifestyle enclave becomes the appropriate form of collective support for individualists in a radically individualized society. Individualism requires finding others who can reflect and confirm one's selfhood and thus validate identity and one's private life. And so what Bela is saying is community often gets co-opted by group narcissism. <laughs> you're like, oh, you're just like me? You have the same tastes as me? And it devolves into a lifestyle enclave. So to wrap this section up and to put a point on it and maybe to raise the, the, the level of challenge more, I'll, we could summarize this way. The church is for mission. That is, a group of people continuing the ministry of Jesus in the world. That is, Practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of friends, strangers, neighbors. That is costly, self-giving love in real time. It does not work any other way. You can't build on any other foundation. It's cruciform. It looks like a cross. And if it hurts and if it's inconvenient and if you don't really like it, you're probably on to something. Because <laughs> neither does working out. <laughs> neither does going to the gym. Like where you're like, I just, I'm enjoying this, you know, more of this. No, like this, this is painful, but I know it's for a point. Let's also be clear, the church is not for consumerism. That is an enclave of people continuing to be loosely spiritual together. 
That is practicing group narcissism for the sake of those in their group. That is convenient, self-fulfilling apathy in real time. One of the stories we've kept coming back to this September, and it's one that I don't feel is anywhere close to being worn out, and it's that story of the road to Emmaus. And we've reminded ourselves of all the movements in that story, that there were two After Jesus' death and resurrection, they're in Jerusalem. They're in the church. They're in the faith, old faith system. And they decide this is broken down. This isn't working anymore. And they left. In week one, we talked about, for those of us who our our faith has been on life support for a long time, it might be time to pull the plug. It might be time to leave Jerusalem. It might be just like call my own bluff and say, this isn't working anymore. But as we see in the road to Emmaus, the shock is that when, we often, when we're often walking away from God, what we're doing is walking right into God. Because <laughs> here they are, they're out on the road, they're muttering to themselves, they're done. And Jesus goes and finds them and draws out the questions saying, what happened? And they say, we had hoped all the disappointment, the disenchantment, the despair, all of that comes flooding out and Jesus makes room for it. But that's just the first part of the story. That's the move into vulnerability and honesty. We, call, we talk about that in our neighborhood groups, the inward practice. That's just the first movement. And we talked on week one how many of us have found each other on the road and in many ways artisan is a community of the road. You all have done really well at this of moving into vulnerability and into honesty. But there's more to the story. Jesus keeps leading them on, leads them into down the road. He starts talking about the whole story of Scripture. And we we saw how often we are restored by being restoried. You find yourself in a story. and And he talks about the whole Scripture concerning himself, not concerning them but that he is the center and the hero of the story. And so that's the movement into just ongoing gospel discovery in the person of Jesus. And their hearts start to burn. They keep going, and it's the movement into the table. We're at the table, and it's a movement into hospitality and reconciliation. And it's at the table where you think you're sitting with a stranger, and you're, you're surprised to discover Jesus. In your presence. You go, what? What was, he, what was he doing here? And it's the table where we feast and we have a place of encounter. That's the with word. And immediately from that point, it says they left and they go back to all places, back to Jerusalem to find their friends and to say, this is actually real. Jesus is alive. He's at work. He just came and found us. We just got restoried. We met him at the table. And now the story is almost with this ellipsis at the end. Now what are they going to do? Well, They're going to go and join Jesus to join him on the roads that he's stalking. It was the Emmaus road. What's the next road? Where is he going next? Where is he going to move into vulnerability and honesty and encounter people and draw that out? And where is he going to show them the gospel and welcome them at the table and create a burning heart? And that, the story just keeps going and going and going. And artisan church, this is what we are for. 
This is what we are for, is to join Jesus in that work, continuing in our day in this city. Not that we take the place of Jesus in the story, but we join him, and that he's doing this work. And now every day becomes an adventure. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know who I'm going to encounter. I don't know what Jesus is going to be up to. But the primary purpose of my day, the reason I wake up, is to have a clear telos of what my life's for, and that's to join him, adventurously expectant, going, what's next? What are you doing? How do I join in? And so imagine then a community of people that that's what they've traded their lifestyle in for, a lifestyle of, of apprenticing to Jesus. And so our mark, we've said, is that we want to see Vancouverites transformed and followers of Jesus and this is uh, intensely challenging for myself. This summer, I had a lot of time off. I had a lot of holidays in July. And what happened through that time off, uh, this person who I'll call Summer Lanny emerged. And Summer Lanny is uh, very undisciplined. Summer Lanny, no exercise, really bad eating, probably drinking too much beer. Summer, you know, Ben, you know Summer Ben? Yeah, Summer Lanny. <laughs> Really appreciate your solidarity. Uh, Summer Lanny, um, because Summer Lanny's a pastor and his work is God, then Summer Lanny has this distorted thing that his rest is not God. And so it's like this whole game of avoiding God. No spiritual discipline or practice. Just kind of living for self. Summer Lanny, I'm done saying that phrase. I... uh, (laughs) It came, it was just me the whole time, yeah. <laughs> um, came back into my office early August after lots of time off, and I got to get back into my work world. I'm sitting into my chair, and I realize I got to face God. I've been avoiding God. I've functionally been living like I'm an atheist, functionally atheist. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I don't, want, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to be quiet. So I sat in quietness for a while. And I heard the simple words, are you still in? Lance, do you still want to be a Christian? And that tweaked me because there was an enormous amount of permission. Like, it was like, you can opt out. Like, if, that is, if that's the telos... If that's the trajectory, if that's what you're setting your desire on, you can opt out. There's no obligation here. But if you want in, I'm here. I said, yeah, I want in. And so opened up my Bible and opened and read these words. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord... Continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And these words lodged in me, and I, and I felt like a dare, saying, the trajectory of your life could be increased confidence, increased faith, increased strength, increased conviction, in, increased astonishment. Not like that your inheritance is becoming less and less sure that God is at work in Vancouver. And that my best days are behind me. It's a dare to enter into a new trajectory for myself to be a follower 
of Jesus. And at the end of our ministry year in June, Scott asked one of the most pointed questions as we were reviewing the year. He said, what are we seeing more of? Vancouverites becoming followers of Jesus or followers of Jesus becoming Vancouverites? Hoy! And I looked at my own life and I thought, am I... The question was like, am I in? Do I want to be a follower of Jesus? I think there's an enormous amount of cultural shame in our in our city, in this congregation. There's an enormous amount of shame about carrying that name. And so the challenge, first of all, is are you in yourself? No obligation. No. Are, are, you, are you in? You can fail. But the, we're, not, we're not arguing over the gym and what, what happens in the practicing. It's all about which way your feet are facing. Second is practicing and becoming. Practicing and becoming. And so this fall, we're, we're going to try and keep recalibrating our shared life to be about practicing the way of Jesus. And next week, Nelson's going to start off, off in a new series, which will be our, our focus for the fall and then be what we keep coming back to over the year. Is, is that how we see ourselves is we are those who practice the way of Jesus in and for the renewal of Vancouver. That's what we do. We practice the, what does that mean? What does that mean to work out and grow in strength and to do the Jesus stuff? I'm going to recalibrate covenant membership so that it means more. The goal is to have a simplified, very basic, practice-oriented, yearly commitment where you can opt in and opt out. And what it's centered around is some very basic shared beliefs in the Apostles' Creed, etc., but it's primarily about shared practice, saying, yeah, I'm in. I'm into failing on that and continuing to practice and learn with a group of people. Our neighborhood groups are going to continue to calibrate to be groups where people learn to practice the way of Jesus. We have a new table group that Nelson will be facilitating called You Are What You Love, and which is all about telos and desire and which way your life is facing We've been able to uh, have a new pastor come on staff, which we're going to commission Terry in a few short weeks here as she's come on as pastor of children and family formation. So to train families uh, how to follow the way of Jesus together and, and so that our kids can be out leading us in that. We want to keep calibrating our, all our movements outward through our neighborhood groups, but through our initiatives, particularly uh, through growing uh, partnership with Red Clover Initiatives as we learn practically how to move into reconciliation between the church and the first peoples. So thank you for those of you who were walking today and showing solidarity and, and, and making the church visible in action. Oh, that's what the church is for. Ah. And so we're going to keep calibrating and growing in that outward direction that we are for more than us. Uh, through partnerships and local and global mission, and then that it happens in every sphere. So I'll close there, but uh, let's imagine all of our different spheres of where that road to Emmaus, those movements, can happen. The spheres at home, our spheres at, in the neighborhood, spheres of work. And we consider, okay, today, what does it mean then to apprentice myself to Jesus? And so... It seems fitting at the end here that for those of us who 
who need to respond in some way. It would be good not to have an altar call. I don't know, I don't know if we've ever done an altar call. We should try one sometime. Um, <laughs> but let's have a table call this morning. Let's have, let's have a table call, being reminded that this table is a place of encounter. And we, we realize Jesus is real. And he meets us as we are. And so if you're interested in having your life recalibrated to, to the purpose of joining his work of renewal in this city, um, come with that in mind. For those of us who feel like we're, uh, we're still seeking and searching and we're unsure, come to the table. Come to the table and be met with grace be met with the compassion of Jesus and the kindness of Jesus that heals. Wherever we're coming from, all that matters is which way our feet are facing. So collectively, we are facing, just because you're forced to (laughs) sit, your feet facing the table. Jesus at the center, and then we get to see everyone else's faces as well. Face one another. So... Let's come to the table this morning and uh, we'll remind ourselves why we do that by sharing in uh, the, t- the gospel uh, litany here. The gospel is the good news that God our Father, the creator out of his great love for us, has come to rescue us from sin and death, to renew all things through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. This is for God's great glory and our profound joy. We acknowledge God as our creator and give him thanks. Acknowledge our sinfulness, thought, word, and deed, things we have done and left undone. We cannot save ourselves. Trust Christ to be our savior and redeemer, one who lived for us, died for our sin, rose again. We see our true identity and loyalty as disciples of Jesus. We submit to his leading. We choose to seek first the kingdom of God rather than the systems of the world. We humble ourselves and seek to live lives of love and compassion, joining God in his work of renewal. We hear the announcement of the gospel. Creator God, be present through your life-giving word and Holy Spirit that we in your entire church may be called out and made whole through this meal. Grant that all who share the communion of the body and blood of your Son may be united in him, and may we remain faithful in love and hope until we feast together with Christ at the coming of the kingdom. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, This cup is a new covenant of my blood. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We'll have a time here uh, for response and to, um, so through worship and singing, prayer, being ourselves as prayers.